Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey guys, welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny. I'm Jen and I've got Kristen here with me. Hi everyone. Kristen, this is the first dark cloudy, rainy day in Charlotte in what feels like weeks. And it's actually nice (laughs) because it's been so unbelievably hot. But you know what I did for lunch today? I had lentil soup and it reminded me so much of you growing up. I feel like you were like my pusher who introduced me to soup when we I were little soup. kids. Yes, exactly. Ramen. Every time I used to go over to your house, we would have soup. Yes. And do you remember in it was fifth usually grade, ramen. It was we just used ramen. to bring thermoses with ramen. Yeah. And like the cool thing to do was to like undercook the ramen. So you'd be <laughs> eating like the crunchy noodles and the raw mm-hmm. like salt packet. It's a miracle. Yeah. Neither of us has like hypertension from all of our like experimenting in sodium. I <laughs> in still days. eat a ton of of salt. I have never I do not too. I love salt. salt. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'd be really curious if any of our listeners have recommendation because I eat a ton of salt, yet I find that I still feel dehydrated. And you know how mm-hmm. salt is supposed to keep Hydrated. water in your body. Yeah. yeah. I saw a news article that some poor mom died no. after she felt really dehydrated after a day out on a boat. And so she drank half a uh, gallon of water and died from water toxicity, which oh my God. it happens if you drink too much water in a short time right. period, but it's right. also a combination of how much salt you actually have in your body to help that water go where it needs to go. And so, you know, wow. all these companies are now advertising like, oh, put these special salts in your water or whatever. And I'm like, can I just do that with like salt? Right, yes, like, you can. And you're yeah. the engineer here. I feel like you know the <laughs> chemical formulas. So you should be able to I tell did. me like exactly what to do and by, bypass this nonsense. I don't remember any of it. I did take organic chemistry and stuff, but I don't remember any Which of it. Which is supposed to be like pound for pound the hardest class in college above all, I right? Orgo? No. I mean, it depends on what Kristen's doing your view is. Sleep. No big no, deal. It's just, you have all these people who want to be doctors who kind of have more of a, I need to memorize mentality. Mm. And I don't know, I guess like, because I was sort of more of the engineering person that's like, oh, it's a problem and I get to solve it. So huh. I loved organic chemistry. I love genetics. Like those were awesome. And then I hated biology because that was just pure memorization. So I don't know. I didn't think they were that hard, but I, I've talked about this before. I hated the labs, <laughs> but right. the, the actual content, I mean, the textbook was like four inches thick, but 
I love that shit. It was like so interesting. <laughs> That's awesome. I never took any of those classes in college. I think we've discussed my illustrious career like as an potions. English major. It's like you combine this we thing and this thing. We make potions too. Yes, Do you too. remember? We would like raid our parents' mm-hmm. medicine cabinets and combine like shampoo and mouthwash. Yeah. I remember doing that with you and then also with Ashley. That yeah. was like... <laughs> We've got to get Ashley and the whole elementary crew. I've asked her. And this is like one of the things that kind of sucks a little bit. It's like so many people who we talk to and we're like, you should come on. And they're like, I have to go through compliance. They have to go through compliance. compliance Compliance is not on board. It's like, you guys want to be on the podcast though. (laughs) Compliance, they might say yes. And we're going to be talking to a friend of yours today, Kristen. Hmm. But I do need to let you know to check your phone because Kristen and I (laughs) share a social media account. And Kristen is a very busy woman. She's out and about on the town getting <laughs> shit done. Just driving, husband, no, dropping my kids off. I'm chauffeuring my kids around your town. Your husband has taken to sending the Wall Street skinny direct messages on Instagram. So this message will pop up on my phone and it says, babe, can you send me the name of the electrician? And you know, because <laughs> I'm in the real estate industry, people are asking me for electrician recommendations on a frequent basis. Like this is a normal text I might get, although it's usually not babe. I don't think he said babe. John doesn't say babe. It's not okay. his, That's he's not more his just demo. like, hey, it's hey. more of a hey. Yeah. yeah. You. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> spouse oh mine yes um but it's funny because like i'm like i should write back like mm-hmm. <laughs> so i did like, I give was a like, random i'll screenshot this and send it to Kristen. and then i was like but if she's not looking at her text but you responded to me before you responded to john yeah i did so, well, he called me this morning to ask me to do it but then i was trying to just work because i have such a short window of time to get things done right between dropping the kids off picking them up the pickups for each kid is different i and know ever, it's like just all this other random him stuff. Our builder stopped by because he had to fix a bunch of stuff and like update the paint. So I'm like talking to him. So I just get nothing done every day. It's a miracle if I'm like able to somehow get fed. Death by a thousand paper cuts. We were hopping on and I'm like, I have to shovel some food in my mouth because I need to eat my lunch and we have to do this before I go get my other kid. I know there's always something, but I do feel like a sister wife. Mm -hmm. I I feel like I'm the third wheel in your marriage. Like, well, I mean, Christian isn't on social media, so I feel like he won't. Yeah. No, no. (laughs) I love your horror. Like, no, absolutely not. He's not on TikTok, but he is on Instagram. Remember how like it used to be like, oh, I'm not on Instagram. That's for Mm -hmm. weirdos. But I'm on Facebook. And that was the opposite. (laughs) There's always a new iterative thing. Have you heard of Fireside? No. So Fireside is, I guess, Mark Cuban's new Mm. interactive social media platform. The only way I learned about it was watching The Real Housewives of Orange County. And apparently Heather Dubrow is launching her channel on Fireside. So we need to investigate this now. So speaking of which, have you started Mm. the new Housewives of New York? No. There's a new one. I know. And it's surprisingly not bad. It has that woman from J. Crew, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's entertaining. Is it? I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. I mean, they always, again, Andy Cohen knows how to put on a good show, right? He does. Yeah. It's a formula. It's just Mm -hmm. plugging in new inputs. They probably have. Kristen, you should do an Excel tutorial (laughs) using the Real Housewives (laughs) as inputs. I don't know what the output should be. (laughs) It's like our Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We should do a podcast on Buffy. We don't know how it's going to relate to finance, but it sounds like it would be fun. We are going to do a podcast on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I just have to figure out how to play it. Um, 
And one quick item of housekeeping before we get mm-hmm. to today's podcast, mm-hmm. which is going yeah. to be so much fun. For those of you who listened to last week's episode, at the very end, we talked about this, that we are so grateful for all of you who've been asking us for more content, more interaction, more advice. It's coming. We are working on building out the other aspects of our business. So please just be patient with us. We are working on building out a consulting arm. We are working on building out a teaching arm where we'll be offering group classes. And we are working on building out actual tutorials that you will be able to download in the future. But this is going to take time. So please just bear with us. We love that you're reaching out and we'll try to answer your questions as often as we can. And you'll see a lot more Q&A episodes from us in the near future as we try to tackle some of those questions. But if you want a one-on-one with us or anything like that, please just be patient. Yeah. As we were saying, there's so little time in the day. It's a miracle that I have clothes on. I mean, (laughs) I probably, that's a bad, I meant to say it's a miracle that I was able to get dressed this morning. Not, (laughs) I love (laughs) it. Came across the wrong way. So Kristen, who do we have coming on today? So today we have Anish Mitra. He is a former kind of classmate of mine, but we're old. So he started actually at Brown after we, (laughs) after I graduated. But I guess in the theme of all the people we seem to have on our podcast, he is also a Brown alum. So Jen, we got to get some Princeton peeps on. I know. uh, Princeton people, you are underrepresented. I will lure you on here. Don't worry. (laughs) We'll talk about our connection and then about what he's actually doing today and his background on the podcast. But it's so fun to talk to him. I'm really excited. So today we are joined by Anish Mitra. And he is someone who actually, funny story, I interviewed for a job at Morgan Stanley in sales and trading. So we'll get to that. But he started in fig banking, then moved to reinsurance. So we'll have to explain what that is. And then moved into talent management, where I actually interacted with Anish when I was doing a lot of the training programs. He was at Goldman Sachs University. And so we would come Mm -hmm. in and do some, some programs there. And then he left and worked at Morning Brew. And he does more like comedy. He has a podcast talking about stocks with one of his friends. The title of your podcast is Laughing Stocks. Which brings me endless joy. I love a pun. (laughs) But yeah, in order to kick this off, I think it would be really great, Anish, if you could tell us a little bit about your background, explain what FIG banking is, because we Mm -hmm. don't use acronyms that we don't explain. Not a Walk us through your career briefly before you talk about your approach to the markets now. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's so fun finally to be doing a podcast with Kristen and and you, Jen. (laughs) Yeah, meeting, meeting you has been great. But yeah, my name is Anish. Some of you may even already follow me on social, but I, I, don't know, I feel old these days, especially being on social media at this age. But <laughs> don't, don't get I, us after you, Anish. <laughs> I graduated. So I graduated from Brown in 2010 with a mm-hmm. degree in economics, and I knew in 2008, like 2007, I learned what Goldman Sachs was for the first time mm-hmm. in my life. Uh, yeah, I'm from Queens, New York. My parents did not work in corporate or finance; they worked for the government. My mom's a teacher, so. Mm-hmm. I think my I had two options when I was in college. I, I didn't want to go to medical school, you know. Sorry, mom. And <laughs> my my two things are I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I liked you know, reading, writing, and logic. And then I learned that there were these guys and women who were making you know hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> to, to make PowerPoint presentations and use Microsoft uh-huh. Excel. And I was like, wait a minute, like I know how to use those two things. But long story short, I started learning more about banking and doing some of these interviews and info sessions. And that's actually how we'll, we'll tell the story in a few minutes. It's how I met uh, Kristen. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, I think a lot of what these young people are going through now, like trying to learn about these industries, I, I had to do that on my own without any real resources because mm-hmm. we didn't have the mm-hmm. internet the way it was. Yeah. So to put a bow on this, I went into 
banking for two years as an analyst in FIG. I was at Barclays. And what does and FIG, FIG stand for? FIG is financial institu- – <laughs> actually, I think it kind of depends which bank you work at. And at some banks, it's financial institutions and governments. And oh, then- Really? Because I, I at Morgan Stanley was financial institutions group. So the G was yeah, just like yeah. group. <laughs> I, I, I Same thing at Barclays. But I, I think, you know, banks are always trying to one up each other. So it's like, yeah. kind of like a deep flex. Like, oh, like. It would be <laughs> too easy if the acronyms were consistent across the street. No. Like, yeah. we are totally different. I mean, but someone said the other day it was else. IBK. I was like investment banking division IBD. And someone's like, it's IBK. I'm like. What is IBK? What's anyway. IBK? Investment banking. I don't know. <laughs> Investment banking. Someone doesn't even know what the K how would be. acronyms King? work. Yeah, yeah, you can't use it after. Maybe it's like the German the section, like investment yeah. banking, Capital or something like that. But, so I was in Fig for two years, Financial Institutions Group, uh-huh. and I think in general, investment banks are on the coverage side. So there's you know product and coverage. So different industries have different coverage groups. And financial institutions is a pretty big group. Banks need banks too, you know? Right. Some uh, people cover power companies. Some people mm-hmm. cover grocery stores. Some people cover other banks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And within FIG, usually it's, you have like banks and what they call depository institutions, institutions that take deposits. Those are obviously very popular now with rates where they are. Insurance mm-hmm. companies, asset managers, fintech, online broker yep. dealers, any any company that touches the finance space. I think there's some overlap too with, with tech as well in recent times. Yeah. But I think the one thing, even for folks listening, if they've heard of FIG before, they're going through the recruiting process. The one thing you often hear is going to FIG is like getting a tattoo on your face. It brands you as- <laughs> I hadn't heard that. A fig- <laughs> yeah, I love that. What do Maybe. you mean by that? Do you mean that it limits your exit opportunities to a certain corridor? I think people will say that because mm-hmm. when you look at certain banks or insurance companies, you know, the metrics that you'll look at, they're not as cookie cutter as the metrics that you look at for, let's say, a food so company. So the skill set you use is much more niche and less applicable to a broad range of circumstances? I would yeah. say there are certain specific accounting things that you might have to learn. Like, for instance, like let's just use insurance, right? Insurance, they're regulated at the state level, right? So uh-huh. wherever they operate, they need to be regulated in that state or approved to operate in that state. But they also have to produce gap financials. So if you look up a 10K or a 10Q, if you're listening to this, you know, generally accepted accounting principles, companies report based on GAAP. And if you look up a 10K or a 10Q, you know, you'll see certain line items that everyone kind of has to to have in order for things Mm -hmm. to be analyzed and and regulated properly. With insurance companies, they have to report gap financials, but they also have to report what's called statutory financials to the state. Mm. And statutory financials, I actually think are easier to read because it's basically kind of cash in, cash out, right? You got this much Uh premium, you got this much investment income, you paid Mm -hmm. up this many benefits, and you know, hopefully you didn't lose this much money on your investment (laughs) portfolio. And and, and here we are, we're solvent. So this is one example of something that you would have to learn that, you know, no one else would have to learn. And I think, Mm. yeah, to, to your point, Jen, some people would say, you know, maybe this is limiting. In my view and my experience, I think valuation is valuation, right? Cash flow mm-hmm. is cash flow. The more you understand and the more you learn, the more it just reinforces your ability to to pick up other things even quicker. That's my mm-hmm. general view. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because the way you value a company, the multiples are different, but it's like the concepts are still there. Just because you're using price to book doesn't mean that you can't understand, well, these other banks are trading at this price to book. So it's the same concept. It's just a slightly different multiple. Yeah. Same I mean, thing. It's, it's almost like saying like if you took Spanish in high school, that brands you as a Spanish speaker because it's a niche <laughs> skill, right? Having valuation skills is generally important. And even if you look at the careers of at least at Goldman, if you look at the careers of 
people who ended up becoming very senior at the bank, they've all spent time in different areas yeah. of the bank. It's very rare mm-hmm. to see someone who kind of just sat on one desk for 30 right. years and now suddenly they're running the investment bank. So in general, I think you know, if you're the kind of person that actually wants a career at a bank, you will likely have to move around and learn new mm-hmm. things anyway. Absolutely. No, that's so true. And so you did a two-year tour of duty in FIG, and then what was the process like from there? We always hear people talking about, I did this for two years as a stepping stone to XYZ, which was my initial path that I always wanted to pursue, and this was just a facilitator for that. It's nice to hear that you kind of did banking for banking's sake. I think banking, finance in general, and banking especially, attracts the kind of person, especially these days, it's so competitive. It attracts the kind of person who you look at some of these resumes. And you know, when I was in talent management, I was always involved in recruiting, even when I was yeah. a banker and whatnot. And you look at some of these resumes and you're like, oh my God, like, you want, mm-hmm. like why do you want to work here? Right. You should, you yeah, should yeah. be working for the president, right? <laughs> Go like, save the world. Yes, exactly. And what I mean by that is, you know, you see people that have just gone through these very, very competitive things and done well, right? Like road Scholar finalists, you know, yeah, this yeah. and that. Like, and by and the I, way, you're tossing some of those resumes out. You're like, ah, oh, just another road Scholar. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they, <laughs> we no, can stack the whole place with them. <laughs> yeah, oh, they it's never true, interned. though. But actually, <gasps> speaking of which, you were telling me how – I interviewed you, but I feel like the specifics of that stuck with you. Oh, yeah. So again, obviously, Anish was at Brown. We both went to the same college, and I loved the whole recruiting process because I was like, mm-hmm. any opportunity I can have to go back on campus, I'm taking that. Yeah. I think it must have been a first year because if it was me, and I think you said it was this other woman, Kate Staley, it was the two of us who interviewed you. And so I was still in fixed income in sales and trading at the time. But again, I was just like, what, three months into this? And I guess we're there. So I go back on campus and you you get all these people coming in and you obviously came in and like you were telling me some of the questions I was asking, which like, by the way, it's so funny. These are people like kind of just making shit up on the spot. And I was like, I don't think we ever got past question one. I think it was question one. What did you ask? Question one was, what's your name? Question two was (laughs) the question and that we just never got past it. Apparently, what was the question? Up. This still traumatizes me to this day, but like <laughs> basically, so for context, there are so many different people that come to campus, right? And even mm-hmm. at that time, this was 09. Yeah. So everyone was applying to every job. It didn't matter what it was. Right. It didn't matter if it was banking, trading, wealth management, even. People yeah. were were just so scared of the fact that yeah. Wall Street might disappear tomorrow. And I think this was like after the crisis, but before the bailouts. And this was a Morgan Stanley sales and trading thing. I don't even think Uh I knew what sales and trading was. And I just applied. I was like, you know what? Morgan Stanley. I know Morgan. I've heard of Morgan Stanley before. You know, JP Morgan's cousin. And (laughs) I I apply to this thing, right? And I get an interview and I'm so happy. I show up to the interview. I have like my copy of the Wall Street Journal, all the tacky things (laughs) that people do. And I get into the room and it's Kristen and this, this other woman. And then and there, I was like already a little confused because I was like, oh, <laughs> did I just barge in on an interview or like, you know, but turns out they're There's both two there. of them. They're like <laughs> there and like they're like looking at me and I'm like scared to death. And Kristen has some good RBF. <laughs> Resting bitch face. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, just, I'm just scared, right? Like I kind of go in there and I'm like, oh my God, what's going to happen here? And then Kristen, I'm pretty sure you asked me, you're like, so you know, let's say I give you $100,000, what would you invest in? Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there and I'm like trying to imagine what $100,000 even looks like. <laughs> you know, I was like 20 years old at the time. I think I looked at you and I was like, oh, I just put it all in a startup. 
And mm-hmm. and then I think Kristen, like you immediately cut me off. You're like, do you know how risky that is? Do you know how like you can lose <laughs> all your money? And a lot of what our clients have been doing, and then she dropped our clients, and that then it was game over yeah. from there. Like she was like, yeah, a lot yeah. of what our clients have been doing, it's like you know they've just been investing, you know, funeral homes. People are always going to die. <laughs> so I did, yeah. I did not say that. Did I actually? <laughs> oh my god. And but so Anish, sitting- this is like your origin story because now you're telling people all day long about how you'd invest money and what you. You think looks rich or cheap so in fact Kristen this question was the genesis of Anish your entire creative oh career henceforth I mean mm-hmm. thank god for Miss Kelly over here and and this is a story uh-huh. of how I never went into entrepreneurship thanks to <laughs> but I uh but I mean look the point of that story is just stuff like that is going to happen that was one of the moments where I was like you know what I really got to figure out is it banking or trading? Yeah. And why? Right? You're like, I gotta, maybe not yeah, trading. trading anymore. I'm out. I'm out. in funeral homes. But it is so true. With, to your point, you're, I was what, three months on the desk? I knew jack shit. I was an engineering major. I literally, it was like the same thing. I knew nothing. And so here I am. It's like, I probably like looked up, like, what are some questions you can ask in an interview? Because, you know, it's like me and Kate were the same year, like going back on campus. Like, we just want to go because we want to go out to Fishco or whatever. There's like this transformation, I feel like, that happens between you are a senior in college is about to go on the desk versus now like you're on the desk. You're like, oh, now I'm such a badass, you know? That's like embarrassing. And then you went into talent management ultimately and probably had a better process for recruiting people. Back to the career arc, yeah. So I I spent, you know, two and a half years at Goldman Sachs Reinsurance Group and that was exciting because- Well, what was the transition from FIG banking to the Goldman Sachs Reinsurance Group? They a client of yours that you then transitioned to? So two years into banking, I mean, honestly, at this day and age, two weeks into banking- a lot mm. of your listeners may be familiar with this. I think you guys even just made a, a great video on it. The private equity yeah. hedge fund recruiting process usually begins. Mm-hmm. Right? As like, we discussed in our last episode about it, it can start before you even hit the desk, before you even yeah. hit training. Yeah. It starts yeah. whenever Apollo wants it to start. Right. Right? <laughs> but most of the folks who enter coverage banking, this is what they want to do, right? They want to do mm-hmm. their two years and they want to go over to some big private equity firm and... I still think that's generally the case. But in my situation, A, I didn't have the opportunities, right? Like you have to start really early. And this is kind of the point I was making about banking Mm -hmm. attracts people who naturally are just very systems oriented and Mm -hmm. they understand step by step, very type A people. And I'm like type A minus, let me just put it that way. (laughs) And I just didn't have all my ducks in a row. And I didn't even know this was something I want to do. Like I didn't, every time I sat down to practice building a leverage buyout model, I was like, ah, like this is so boring. Like I didn't know (laughs) if this is what I wanted Mm -hmm. to do all day. And I generally like financial services. I want to learn more about this space. And I randomly got an email from a Goldman recruiter that was like, I got your resume. We want to interview for this Goldman Sachs reinsurance group. It's a buy side group. You know, they're looking for an associate. And it was like 15 interviews. Uh, you know, their interview process is very notorious. So mm-hmm. right as I was leaving Barclays, I had gotten the offer there. So it was a very natural transition. I was like, okay, I'm still, I'm on the buy side. I'm getting that investment experience that I wanted. But it's also at a bank holding company and there's structure there and there's a career path. And- stability and all that so, yeah, stuff. Exactly. So that's kind of how that happened. And then speaking of stability, so the minute I join, two months in, it turns out we're spinning off from Goldman. So, <laughs> so but that was, 
But that was fun. That was a $1.3 billion spinoff that we had to do. So you know, that's almost like a mini IPO, right? A mini yeah, public offering. You're putting together materials. We had to write a private placement memorandum. We had to go out and find investors. Yep. So it's a spinoff. It's an equity carve out, essentially, right? Well, like, think of it this way, right? Like, like Goldman, Goldman owns 100% of it, and now they want to own 50% of it. So yeah, who's yeah. going to own the other 50, right? So they have to go the out public. and find. Yeah. It was a fun, fun process. And it's something that I, I never would have experienced in the world of private equity, just, you know, pumping out LBOs all day. So and I, what was the business model within this reinsurance group for someone I, who has no idea what reinsurance is? I, if you actually think about what Warren Buffett does and mm-hmm. how he started with Berkshire, right? It was, this, you know, insurance yeah. company. It's really the same business model as a bank, right? Why is JP Morgan reporting record earnings? They have your deposits that they're paying you 0.1% on. Newsflash, I hope no one's feelings gets hurt when they realize this. And mortgage rates are at all-time highs, right? Local highs. Local <laughs> highs. Yeah, exactly. So this is how you know I'm not a supermarkets uh, person. Like, you're fine. You're fine. But that net interest margin is huge. Insurance works very, very similarly. And to the point about bond math and things like that, I know that's something you guys have talked about too. This is where that comes into play because yeah. mm-hmm. different insurance liabilities have different durations. They mm-hmm. you could have a five-year annuity. So you have this liability for five years. So you have to find five-year money to match that. Or you could have life insurance policy, right? Which is, if all goes well, 30 to 40 years. liability. Uh, And and now you have premium that you have to put away for 30 to 40 years. And, you know, the principal has to be protected. So when you think about the insurance model, you have assets that you're getting in premium. You have to match those assets with liabilities. How much equity are you holding against these liabilities? That's where the money is made. Because if Mm -hmm. I only have to hold a dollar for every $10 in assets on my balance sheet, if my return on assets is 2%, then my return on equity now is 20%. There's an inherent leverage that's in the model that a lot of people don't realize. And Especially since we talk about them as real money. It makes you think that it's a dollar for dollar spend and everything that they do. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. So when you think about managing a huge insurance company balance sheet like Berkshire, for instance, at this point, Mm -hmm. the balance sheet, they've done such a great job investing in the balance sheet is so big that it's almost like, I think it's almost mathematically impossible. I mean, never say never, but like, because it's diversified and it's so big, it's very difficult to see a situation where the entire thing goes to zero. And that's effectively what you're doing at an insurance company. It's you're trying to create a balance sheet that can consistently return 10 to 15% to your shareholders. The business model, to answer your ultimate question, why would Goldman be more competitive than, let's say, AIG? Well, some of this comes down to you know, asset expertise. Most of the people on our desk were people that were really good at buying subprime mortgages. <laughs> <laughs> so like they were doing this and they were specializing in this. I mean, that's like the reason we had a financial crisis. But, you know, you had this small group of people. There aren't that many people that were experts in that sort of thing. And this was about the time where the market was actually picking back up again. Mm-hmm. So one of our main strategies was, let's just say we reinsured $5 billion of annuities from AIG. We get a $5 billion liability now, right? We have to be able to pay out $5 billion, whatever it's due. We also get $5 billion of assets backing the block. Mm -hmm. AIG is heavily regulated. They're a large company. They're not trying to swing for the fences, right? They're just trying Mm -hmm. to get on base, whether they get hit by the ball or not. Most of that portfolio is likely going to be in treasuries, cash, very safe investment grade bonds. What we would do is we would likely reallocate. So my job in this whole thing was I was on the business development M&A team. One of the benefits of being in this framework was I would have to walk over to the trading desk a lot and just learn, just literally sit next to some VP of asset backed securities and be like, wow, what's this? 
What's yeah. credit? Wow. Credit card debt? What's that? <laughs> like auto yeah, yeah. loans? What are those? <laughs> and I would work with them, right? If we were pricing an M&A deal, I'd try to figure out, hey, this is but, the insurance company's portfolio. What would you guys put it into? But so I just want to like really emphasize that. So you say you were sitting on the trading floor learning this stuff from like the traders. So I had to take a series seven. So most bank, you know, in terms of regulatory exams, right? When you join mm-hmm. the desk, I think now they have this new like SIE thing, right? You know, this is well, once again, mm-hmm. I'm bold now, but Back in my day, you had to take four and a half hour exam called the Series 79. And then you had to take the Series 63, which is just so you could operate in any state effectively. For the record, in my day, I didn't have to take the 79. That actually started. Yeah, 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 yeah. In my so. day, they let anybody on the desk. Yeah, <laughs> well, my childhood trauma is just for our listeners who don't know of all the series exams, the Series 63 is renowned as like the don't lie, cheat or steal exam. It's the one that you should be able to pass in your sleep because those are the basic (laughs) principles of it. So I thought, again, I got a 1600 on my SATs. I was like, I can do this in my sleep. Don't lie, cheat or steal. How hard could it be? You show up and it's like, when was the don't lie, cheat or steal act put into place? The summer of 1939, the winter of 1940, late spring 1941. So I failed the series 63, which now you could be fired outright. They could revoke your offer. But Jen, I feel like mm. now a 1600 near SAT doesn't sound that impressive because I think they Sorry, actually I got a 2400. Yeah, no, right. they have the writing exam. I got a 2400 because I got an 800 well, on that, that too. That's a, but Jen, that's a really good point though. So the first time I took my 79, I failed too because I was so Did arrogant. you? Yeah, because I was oh, like- I love how we're all bearing our souls. No, I, I was like, you know, this Ivy League grad and I was yeah. just like, you know, I don't need to oh, study we all for this. We like, like this is just yeah. like some regulatory exam. Like I'm going to walk right. into this and it's just going to be common sense. I have common sense. It was a disaster. It's hard. It was yeah. an absolute yeah. disaster. Yeah. It's yeah. more yeah. like the bar exam. You just have to know yes. specific things. Yes, correct. You have and to memorize certain facts. Even, yes. I mean, I'm a real estate agent now. The real estate exam, it's the same way. You need to understand how to calculate a survey the way like the pilgrims did it. It's like, oh, a meets and bounds <laughs> survey. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be talking about that on a $5 million new construction home. So I had to take the Series 7 exam, which was something that at the time only traders took and people. Yep. And- in sales and trading, yeah. And I want to be very clear, like I'm not portfolio managing. I'm not making buy decisions. I'm not talking to salespeople, even though I'd always joke around with some of my friends like, yo, just put me on the phone with one of these sales guys. Let me see if I can do it. Like, give me a tryout, like a joke. But one of the main components to valuation, if you're evaluating a reinsurance deal is, well, how much money am I going to be making on the invested Mm -hmm. assets? The equation is basically your return on assets times the leverage that you have. So whatever percentage of those assets is the equity. Anyone can go right now and, and look up every insurance company, every bank too, when banks do capital testing. That's what they're mm-hmm. testing. If they have 11% here in capital and the assets perform a certain way, are they going to get wiped out? I mean, that's effectively right. how insurance companies work as well. And we need to know, like right now, the current asset portfolio is yielding 2%. Can Mm -hmm. we get this to 230? Can we get this to 240? What should we do? So it's in the context of that, in the context of valuation. I was not going through bond covenants. It gets very granular what I learned too. If they're buying into a loan pool, they have access to all 10,000 loans and some sorry man or woman has to go through every oh, single God. one of those loans. So Jen and I were talking about this, that people think if like you're a trader versus as a banker, it's so different. But so it's so interesting that because of what you were doing, you really did have this like close connection with sales and trading. It's like you needed to understand a lot of the nuances there. Now, I don't think I would have gotten that experience in private equity. I guess maybe you could get that at a hedge fund because you're obviously buying. But it's all totally different. And again, you know, in private equity, every single one of those things that you did, that would have been five years of your life. <laughs> one of those investments, oh, right? God. Maybe I'm just too romantic about this stuff also. Like I genuinely think finance is interesting. It's just different things are more mm-hmm. interesting than other things. And I think if you're yeah. 
a person listening to this and you're trying to figure out, you know, is this a career path for me? 99% and I know because I've been there, you guys have both been there, you're both high achievers. It's always spent on landing the role. Now I got to get into the best group. And once Mm -hmm. you get to the best group, I got to work on the best deals. It's always on racking things up. But at some point, you're going to have to wake up and you're going to have to ask yourself, well, what is it about this line of work that I really like? Is it helping clients? Is it thinking about macro? Is it writing research? Is it doing just the adrenaline of doing deals? The moment I realized this wasn't going to be for me is my boss at Goldman Sachs for Insurance. He was very, very smart. He's still there. He's very senior now. He's probably made tons of money. We were talking once and he was just telling me like, the reason I do this is I happen to be working in life insurance, right? And I like it. and It's interesting. But what I love doing is I love doing deals. I love calling Mm. on people. I love even getting rejected, going out there and doing transactions. That's what makes me feel really good. You have to find that thing that you really love about this. And you're not going to find that unless you kind of stay open-minded and and you do things that you wouldn't otherwise normally do. If I hadn't gotten into going with insurance, I honestly think I would have hated finance because like my experience up until that point was putting together these weird valuation models and double checking typos and writing memos. Finding periods on the footnotes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So like, I'm glad I had that experience because I had to think it was a lot of macro. It was a lot of like back and forth with people. It was very fast paced. And to this day, when this whole SVB, Silicon Valley Bank Mm -hmm. stuff was happening and people were like, wow, what's duration? Like, I'm sure you guys felt Mm -hmm. really happy. Like, oh, see, like people actually- It was was my moment. I was so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Like the amount of Macaulay duration count I had to do you know, 10 years ago. And then now suddenly it comes up. And, you know, yeah. I remember like in the friend group chats, like, guys, uh, why don't I take this one? <laughs> As someone who like has taught duration, but didn't really understand it on the trading floor. I learned it in investments in college. And then I mm-hmm. was teaching it in some debt capital market stuff, but I didn't actually understand it until I saw how it was applied when Jen was explaining it. And I was like, oh, light bulb went off, right? Or like with the SVB stuff. I'm like, oh, I get it now. It was so funny. And Jen was just like, oh God. Well, the um, thing that's so great about this industry. So initially I was an English major, so I had no finance mm. exposure before I went into the industry myself. And the thing is we have so many conversations about this, but I really want to hammer it home is that you can study the academics of this until you're blue in the face, right? You can yeah. read Fabozzi's hand book of fixed income. You can read the treasury bond basis, whatever it is. One day on the trading floor will teach you more than you've learned from that book. And you probably won't be doing any Macaulay duration equations. You'll be thinking about, I don't know, ballpark the duration of a 10-year note at seven. I'm just going to multiply everything up and down by Mm -hmm. seven. And you'll be doing basic arithmetic and understanding your P&L through that framework is so much more illustrative in understanding how the markets work and understanding what moves global wealth around than reading a 2,000-page textbook with millions (laughs) of tiny equations. And I will say this till I've said this multiple times in my content. I tell everyone this. People don't understand how the business and banking works. Like just ask someone who they'd rather be friends with. Would you rather be friends with an English major or a robot? Who's going to be more fun at a dinner party? Someone who majored in English and read classics and has stories for days. I'm awesome at a dinner party, man. Yeah, talking about Tolstoy over cocktails. Man, I am just it's, a riot. It's a client business. If you look at a lot of the senior mm-hmm. people who work yeah. at these firms, yes. they, they are – 
by large, liberal arts majors or economics majors. And it's because that's the only way to move up, right? The technicals yeah. you will learn. And at some the point- The technicals only you, take you so far and well, everyone the, can- And, and they get delegated the away anyway. They get delegated away. You're not going to be deep in a model as a, 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 a you know, 50 or MD. I mean, I hope Speaking not. Speaking of like, robots, <laughs> but I mean, how yeah. many of those functionalities that everyone prides themselves on so much now? Hey, I'm the fastest in Excel. Okay, cool. A robot's faster, by the way. So <laughs> yeah. give, it, yeah. give it five months and you're going to be replaced by AI. Now what you got? Now I was saying this to Jen, that what you do technically as a, as an analyst is so much different than what you were doing at the senior levels. At the senior levels in banking, you are the same as someone who was working in sales on the trading floor. It is a relationship business. Yes, you have to and understand. And in trading, by the way, in the senior levels in trading, mm, you're doing sales. Yeah. But it's sales. You're being brought is, out it's dragged in front of clients. Being good with clients. The models, the technicals, it's important because that's how people learn this stuff. And uh, Jen and I want to have a whole other conversation down the line about why it actually is helpful to know how to build the model. That's how you like kind of understand how pulling this lever affects this other thing. But yeah, I mean, like at the senior levels, it's a sales job. Like it's a sales job. I mean, I, I remember that was the selling point of banking. At least when I was going mm-hmm. through interviewing, it was like, oh, it doesn't matter what you major in. We just mm-hmm. want Correct. smart people. That's the whole point that you don't need to be obsessed with gap accounting since age three. And I don't They're going to teach it to you. And I don't think yeah. they want people like that. I think they want folks yeah. who can have a conversation. They want folks with common sense. They want folks mm-hmm. who you can leave alone with a client. The classic thing, right? Oh, we're delayed at Delta. It's definitely going to happen these days. And mm-hmm. are you going to embarrass yourself? Are you going to say something stupid? Or are you going to embarrass the firm? Are you going to create a, a Wall Street Journal situation? Or are you just going to be chill <laughs> and like, you know, you'll, you'll understand what's going on? Like, that's effectively yeah. what everyone wants, really, right. in any industry, I would say. So, And so and, that's a great mm-hmm. point to talk about your transition then out of that side of the industry into the Mm -hmm. talent development side? Because it sounds like you very much have your finger on the pulse of what makes a successful financial services employee. So I like education. And I think this is probably my fatal flaw, but also (laughs) what drives me. I like learning. I think that's why I went to Brown. You can Mm -hmm. study whatever you want there. And I actually did study. Maybe that was also the other flaw. And (laughs) I was in a period. So this is 2015. I'm at Goldman Sachs Reinsurance Group. They spun off to become this company called Global Atlantic. You can look them up. I think it just got acquired Mm -hmm. by KKR, actually. I had kind of decided, okay, I have done a few deals here. I don't know if this path is for me. I'm going to now take a step back. And I wanted to try something more creative and I started doing stand-up comedy in New York. Stop. Yeah. and once That is a- the most terrifying thing imaginable. And I don't want to make it seem like I quit my job to do this. It was just I needed a break. And to keep myself busy, I started this new hobby. And within a few months, some recruiters from Goldman reached out to me again. And they're like, hey, there's this group called Goldman Sachs University. And so I- like we've seen your stand-up comedy routine. So <laughs> yeah. it's time for you to come back to finance. <laughs> we've, we've, yeah, exactly. We've, we've heard these jokes and we think you'd be much better off in front of a spreadsheet. I was like, what's Goldman Sachs University? And where were you when I needed you the most? And they needed someone to run the banking training program. Kristen, I'm sure you're very familiar with this when you show up and the banking training program needed a manager. And I was like, yeah, I I could easily do this. I mean, I went through banking training myself. So Mm -hmm. I joined in the summer of 2015 to just work as full-time employee. I was an associate in human capital management. And that ended up being a nice four and a half year journey of being a human capital management professional. My industry knowledge was very helpful 
because I knew the culture. The number one thing that I think bankers spend time trying to figure out when they first join, my bankers, I mean like anyone who works at a bank, what yeah. does everyone else do? You know, like you're trying to figure out what everyone else does. And like one of the easiest ways I added value in, in like my first two weeks of the job was some senior person was like trying to figure out if structured products was in banking or in trading. <laughs> or and in like, sales and trading, yeah. And I remember looking up a few bankers and I was like, oh, they're definitely in banking. They should not be on that side of the wall. And like, I remember that was a huge value app. Like I got pulled into a bunch of meetings moving forward. And I was like, you know, this is kind of fun. I get to be an internal consultant for the investment. Because yeah. the job ended yeah. up evolving, you know, as I got promoted to like, okay, the bank has this problem. Partners would come to us and be like, hey, Diverse interns, for instance. The offer rate at Goldman Sachs, and I think this is the case in most banks, is 80 to 90%. Everyone's getting an offer. If I don't get an offer, I'm going to look like an idiot. We always say it's your offer to lose. I think the statistics show that that's basically correct. But like when we looked at some of these stats, they're like, yeah, diverse interns are getting offers at you know half the rate. That, wow. That's average. Like, what's going on? What culturally? You know, this was a problem that to try and solve. We instituted some types of trainings. This is just one example of the kinds of things right. that someone in human capital management could do. Once again, it was a great learning experience. But I think I finally had enough of like the bank world at the end <laughs> mm-hmm. of 2019, and then I ended up moving to LA and trying something new. And you know, let's see how it goes. So talk to us then about the genesis of your podcast. And I really want to get a better understanding of how you've taken all the knowledge that you got from your experience in the financial services and are now applying it and sharing that knowledge with the public. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say just content creation in general. I started doing this during COVID, almost I would say maybe three years ago to the date. And since then, growing my personal accounts to 50,000 total followers across all platforms. You know, it's been- That's huge. But I think in general, over the last three years, I've been spending my time combining comedy, finance, education, and seeing where, where that goes. With the podcast, I launched Laughing Stocks, the podcast. You can listen to it on all platforms. I launched that with my buddy, Zaid Admani, who I had met doing content. He is funny. He's big on TikTok. He's Admani Explains uh-huh. on TikTok. And So wait, so just quickly, so you met him through doing content, not through- working together in finance. Correct. Yeah. He's an engineer. Oh. So he he's like a Houston oil person and he was an engineer for a long time. And then he started making content back during COVID as well. So uh-huh. oh wait, so he didn't even work in finance then? No, he's just Oh, uh, so he's like a legit know? engineer. Cause I think I'm an engineer because I studied engineering. I never was an engineer. I just I'm like, yeah, I was an engineer. But Hard he like hats was an vests. engineer. Hard hats and Damn. vests, you know? Interesting. Okay. It's a good dynamic, right? And that's what we bring yeah. on the yeah. podcast. To me, like he represents most people, it's like the smart person who wants to learn more about money, but is having so, a lot of trouble mm-hmm. because there's just no easy place to go. And they obviously don't teach it yeah. in school. And then I represent the kind of the person who was on the inside, so to the speak. The insider. Mm-hmm. But I'm chill enough to be like, but that's okay. That's what people do on the inside, but this is how it all kind of translates. Got and it. Basically, our podcast is bridging that gap using yeah. humor and talking about the important things that people care about, whatever's going on in the news, big stocks, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Oh, that's so, so cool. when you're talking about investment strategies, were you to be trading equities at either a sell side or buy side firm, mm-hmm. you would have access to a deep well of information into systems and models mm-hmm. and technology that would help you get all this information very, very quickly, distill it down for you and enable you to make decisions more quickly. Mm-hmm. By the time it gets filtered through to us, the general public. Well, right? it's also even the sell side research. I mean, that is expensive. Yeah. yeah it's like no, the sell side research isn't available to us. 
You could buy so, it, but maybe pay for it. not all of it. It's yep. not all just like, oh, go on Amazon and I'll buy right. the Barclays Economist's <laughs> global macro <laughs> summary for 2023. That's not how it works. So how do you now as a member of the public. Yeah, I know. What the, resources of well, the dumb money public? Yes, I wanted to add that to our repertoire because you've got the real money, like the pension funds, the insurance company, the fast yeah. money is the hedge funds, and then the dumb money. The dumb money is all of us, right? Yeah. We are the retail investors. Like how do we, who don't have the systems, who don't have the research, For disclosure purposes, invest? by the way, I never used the term dumb money on the trading <laughs> Jen floor. Jen hadn't so I, We don't talk about clients <laughs> that way, we promise. No, no, no. This is something I heard heard somebody say on a podcast like the other day I was listening to and they called it dumb money. And I was like, I've never heard that. Has Jen heard that? Jen's like, no. All of us podcasts have become so iterative. We're like, well, I heard about a podcast, so it must be true. So now I'm going to talk about it on my podcast. Next thing you know, you're 10 podcasts deep in a game of telephone and everyone's like, dumb money is what everyone says. I think there's way more private markets than public markets anyway. But this guy said that, that like basically all the quote unquote dumb money got on the train of buying in like the Magnificent Seven and stuff before the real money kind of caught on. Yeah, because I, I think the, the quote-unquote dumb money likely indexes, and that's what my advice would be. I want to be very clear, like, even if you have access to Cap IQ Premium, if they even have that, or right. Faxet, or you have a Bloomberg in your home, everyone else has that too. I don't think that's going to give you an edge. I'm sure everyone who works at Tiger Global Equities had five monitors, and they still lost. Everyone who works at ARC, I'm sure, has five monitors as well, right? Like, the fact that you can make money in the market by simply having more technology technology to me is unless you're doing something like what Rentech is doing and they legitimately have found a cheat code or a golden goose. The book, The Man Who Who Beat the Market is about this guy, Jim Simons, and it's about Renaissance capital. What I'm trying to make is like, clearly, I don't think anyone there knows what a stock is. Like, I don't think anyone there has even seen a gap filing. I think they just figured out, like they look at volume and market movements and they figured out like a way to make money based on trading Got before it. people or whatever, right? They're treating it like a video game. Almost like momentum. Got the way you said, like mm-hmm. us, regular- They trade market signals. Yeah, like us regular people, we actually look at a company and we're like, oh, okay, Apple. Rich, cheap. Yeah. Is it going to continue to go up? Or, oh man, like, you know. What does the PE ratio look like? And how is that relative to its historical ratio? We want to be fed a story on where the stock is going. NVIDIA, right? That's probably one of the hotter names these days. And people like the story behind that. Oh, AI, it's going to be huge. And they make all the chips and blah, blah, blah. And that's why I'm putting my life savings into it. You know, Tesla, another big story driven company, right? People are really putting their entire 401k into Tesla at the high because they just love Elon and they love the story and Mm the reduction act. So I think that's in my mind where most people, regular working people who aren't in asset management, who aren't in finance, and they have some money to play around with, or they want to get rich quick. They're like, all right, like, what's the company? What's the next story that I want to buy? And to those people, I would say, don't waste your time. It's yes. not worth it. So instead of doing that, they should be doing more what Warren Buffett would probably recommend, which is the diversified portfolio of things that aren't, like you said, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You don't have the information asymmetry. You don't have the trading systems. You don't have access to the best intel. Trade the broader market maybe go overweight or underweight certain sectors based on a story. But to invest your life savings in a single name stock, I don't know if you guys saw this. Uh, Apparently Tupperware is the new meme stock. Did you see this, Anish? What? I want to talk about Tupperware. Yes. Wait, hold Um, on. Yes, sell me on Tupperware. When are we buying? No, no, no. (laughs) I I figured you'd have the inside scoop on this. Oh my God. Tupperware is up 300% in the past month. 
So for people listening, um, I mean, this this is a two hundred and forty one million dollar market cap company, like with the run up, with the run is that yeah. big or small? Sorry, because people may not know. I think it's pretty small, right? I mean, that's exactly, pro- <laughs> exactly. So if you if you have just like a medium sized hedge fund or asset manager, right? If there's only that much outstanding in the float of a company. That's not much. So if you want to take a real position in that, you might own a huge portion of that company. Now I'm curious, like, does Tupperware actually make any money? Like, now I want to pull the 10K, take a look. Let's go out of Tupperware. Read the <laughs> so, earnings okay, call. So <laughs> the reason I wanted to discuss Tupperware as our case study today is if you were to do a podcast episode on Tupperware next week, which you won't because I'm sure the story will be dead by then. But how would you approach doing an analysis of that company to then share that insight? Walk us through the steps because I want what you would do with your background to make a thoughtful opinion about that company. So what would be your first step? Because you don't know anything about Tupperware other than they make plastic containers or are you a Tupperware expert? I don't know a single, I think I have some, I think I probably like need more. I think that's usually the case with Tupperware as you grow (laughs) and become a mature adult, you need to buy more. Right. And Tupperware has now been like replaced because of its plastic toxicity. It's like not good with the almond moms. So now you have to have like the (laughs) The special non-toxic, like the ceramic, the stuff Mm -hmm. that, you know, basically you should be able to sleep in and, and somehow get healthier. So I think Tupperware has been like a long forsaken brand. So again, how would you approach it? What would your first steps be to form an opinion on the company? I would go to the source first. I've always been the kind of person that just likes to go to the source. I don't like to look at message boards or anything like that. It's if mm-hmm. you if you were in a, a room with no one else, no internet, and all you had were these filings, would you be able to come up with an opinion? That's where I would start. Love it. Right? Love um, it. And I would pull the 10K. I'd pull the Q. And these are their quarterly and annual reports that they have to yes. file as a publicly traded company. Yeah. So every company that is public has to file a 10K, which is their annual statement. This is like your Instagram year in review, right? Or your Spotify year <laughs> in review that I'm sure many of you have pulled. And then the 10Q is every quarter. They file the 10Q. And in these statements, there's historical financials as well. So it's not mm-hmm. just what happened that year. You'll see what happened the year before that, the year before that. I mean, this is how manually, you know, if you don't, you know, to Jen's point earlier, if you don't have some of these services, these software services like CapIQ yeah. or FactSet, you'd have to do this manually, right? You have to go pull right. it and do it. And this is what a lot of us have to do in training. A lot of people have, you know, early onset arthritis because of this. Although Kristen told me I should just be bookmarking a PDF to go through the K's and Q's, which no one ever taught me to do. So that's why I no, burned I out my first year of banking. So that you know where the like the financial statements are. I mean, you can also theoretically go to the little table of contents and click on it. It's like if you had an actual filing, you'd stick a little post-it so you can easily get yeah. to the financial statements, the MDNA, and the footnotes and stuff. Jen was saying in a 10K, she was like, oh, I can't read a 10K. And I was like, well, you don't read it from cover to cover. You would potentially go to the financials. <laughs> yeah, no one taught me that. So you can yeah. imagine how Jen, quickly no, like, disenchanted I became don't, with Don't banking. let the English major take control of the wheel. Okay, don't read the entire 10K. I hung up on a dangling modifier on the 58th page of the quarterly report. <laughs> <laughs> so I was telling her, like, you're going to go to the financials. You want to look at the actual balance sheet and the cash flow statement and right. the income statement, and then you can, like, use the footnotes. Why don't they just out- send out an Excel spreadsheet with all this stuff pre-populated and you filed can download. out as well? You can download that, actually. Yeah, the- that would just make everyone's life so much well, if you're, easier. If you're, yeah, I mean, one doing. thing we used to do when we were at Barclays, for instance, right? You have equity research analysts who cover yep. the company. So, you know, they already have the model available. So we would just mm-hmm. download which is kind of, like, very hilarious and ironic. But Talking about those with Jen, just about the fact that if you're in banking, you often are stealing what the equity research analyst is doing. Like you're stealing their model. You're stealing their assumptions. And then ironically, the the funds like private equity is going to like hire out of banking. And they're like, well, we don't want the research analyst because- 
but, but I guess to, to answer the question, like that's where I would start. I would pull yep. the financials. I'd pull the stock price history. And then I would look at and like- And so then what are the metrics that you would use to then evaluate whether or not you believed in the investment thesis so or for, to formulate your for thesis? For something like Tupperware, I mean, this is a consumer company, right? It's a consumer products uh-huh. company. In my view, the thing you need to look for is does it create any cash, right? The value of the equity, in my view, is going to come from the cash because if mm-hmm. they're printing tons and tons of cash, well, that cash is either going to get- dividended out to shareholders. It's going to be used for buybacks. Although uh, now it looks like it'll be expensive to do buybacks if they're up uh, 300% (laughs) or whatever. Um, Or it's going to be used for for M&A, right? Or whatever their strategic purposes. So cash is king. And that's usually Mm -hmm. the first thing that I care about anyway for a name that's not- It's the K in investment banking. Yeah. yeah. For a name that's not going to be driven by growth or hype, like some of these tech names- that's, in my view, the first thing to look for. It's like, well, does this business actually make any money? Would I want to own this business, right? That's what's going to happen. Are they getting into the non-toxic Tupperware business and now they're a growth story? Yeah. Or did they sneak in AI a few times in their 10K and, and that's why people are <laughs> buying the name, right? Like what is actually, I mean, that, that's the next piece, right? It's AI like, Tupperware. Like the first, the first piece is to get a good, what does this company look like financially? Think about it like you're setting up a Tinder profile for the company. So like, what does this look- Something that for the record, if our husbands are listening, Kristen and I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and fiance. Just from what the kids are saying, from what the kids are saying. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, I, what you've heard. Basically, if you were to put together a, a summary on what this company has done or a book report, let's say, okay, what would that look like? So that should not mm-hmm. take too long in my view, which is going through the financials, going through the earnings calls, you know, what's going on. So like, I would say the first piece, I would break it up into three things. The first piece is fundamental, okay? Yeah. And What's actually going on? Looking at numbers is probably a little bit more technical, but it's really more like research. It's not even technical. Mm-hmm. You're not doing any, any equations. Um, the second is the market. So it's like, okay, mm-hmm. what is going on? Like, why are people buying this? What's the story? Is Does it mm-hmm. make sense logically? And then to, you know, you mentioned earnings, estimates, things like mm-hmm. that, that would fall into there as well. It's like, all right, well, what's the research community saying? Like oftentimes- mm-hmm. Now, what if it's a company that's not covered because no one cares what Tupperware is doing? Or it's too small. If Tupperware is not covered, now is a great time to start writing your own research reports and and buying start selling some and, and buying stock and then just putting them up on Substack and charging twenty bucks a month. No, yeah. I'm, I'm kidding. Don't do that. You'll go to jail. But if it's not covered by research, I mean that to me that's a bit of a red flag, right? It's like this is a company that has been public since 1996, so it's been public for what like 27 years and. No one has thought to cover this. And so then if it's not covered by research, the next thing I would look into is who are the public holders of this company? If it's mm-hmm. not covered by research, chances are no one's really selling this name. I would assume you don't have a lot of institutional presence in the name, which to me tells me that you don't have long-term holders of the stock. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to buy this thing with the hopes that it's going to 10x or 20x, if the stock doesn't have any real long-term holders, what's going to end up happening is you're just going to get dumped on. Like you're going to be the exit mm-hmm. looter. Like whoever's been trading this is going to dump it on you. In terms of the second bucket of market, I mean, yeah, these are the things I would look at. What's going on in the market? Who's saying what? Who actually owns it? Who covers it? Who doesn't cover it? Where do people think this is going to go? Mm-hmm. And so obviously the big case study that this harkens back to is what happened with GameStop. And we talked about this on another podcast that they're going to be making a movie about that soon, which I am very <laughs> oh excited to see. Yeah. <laughs> but so the reason I was I was also curious to get your take on this is you can have your fundamental analysis. You can get a good understanding of who the critical players are in the market and the price action. Mm-hmm. But there can be things that happen in the markets that don't make sense. 
right? Of course, yeah. Where there's an online Reddit community that suddenly gets passionate about Tupperware, (laughs) whatever may be happening, right? So then how do you think individual investors should approach market dynamics like that? Is it stay away with a 10-foot pole? Is there a place for fundamental analysis in light of that kind of market price action? Mm -hmm. Like what is the interplay between the two? Look, I think this all comes down to the mirror. Look in the mirror and ask yourself what the goal of this is. I have friends who just do this for fun and mm-hmm. they budget out. Have- it's their gambling money. That's like yes. when you go to Vegas, exactly. you've got your thousand dollars of gambling money and you're like, okay, if I lose this, I'm done for the weekend it- and you have to stop yourself And it out. doesn't hurt me at all. I don't need this mm-hmm. for rent. This is yeah. literally yeah. just it's- the So was my last thousand dollars. <laughs> I know. It's yeah. not right. a wealth building strategy. It's more like, hey, my wife said it's okay to do this. It's, it's the price of <laughs> playing the we game. Checked with management. It's, it's again, it's like Vegas, right? It's the price of playing the game. We check with management. It's the cost correct. of admission. Yeah. Um, check with management. So, so that's, that. that's one bucket. And if that's the bucket, then I would say, yeah, just have fun. I mean, try to be sensible about it in some way. Figure it is money. <laughs> and you need to understand your own risk tolerance. You know, it's funny. We talk about Vegas. You may not know this. You're a very scary sales and trading interviewer, Kristen Kelly. Oh, we went to Vegas, Vegas 10 fiend. years ago together to go For see the Britney Spears concert. <gasps> no, no, no. It was a couple's trip. We went to go see Britney. And my favorite memory of the trip was Kristen being escorted (laughs) off the gambling floor by a 400 pound bouncer who lifted her up like she was a rag doll. She's barefoot. I don't remember this. Barefoot. Okay. What'd you do? Did you bankrupt them? Were you betting like 10 times the max? I mean, I think I was like yelling at him. You were yelling at the, I think you were convinced that the craps table was rigged. I don't remember this. This news to me. I mean, so this is why Kristen and I describe ourselves as very risk averse. We both went with our allotted allowances for that weekend and whatever (laughs) Kristen's was when she blew through it. Didn't handle it so well. So Jen actually organized. I mean, I didn't have like an actual maid of honor, but like she would have been. I mean, she was. Oh, she like that's so my sweet. Wedding. It was true. Oh, you know, she you. organized my bachelorette. And nice. um, anyway, so we went to Vegas for my bachelorette party, and my husband knew that I don't like putting money at risk. He's like, if I don't give you this money, you're not gonna. But you need to have. He fun. like made so you gamble. Bankrolls me and his sister Elizabeth so that we would actually. And Elizabeth like walked away. She earned a ton of money. Do you remember? Oh, that? she was great at the blackjack. Oh. Yes. Never played yeah. blackjack with Kristen. Okay. Oh God. <laughs> My husband will never forgive her for her blackjack performance. Why? Because I don't be know like, what I'm doing. He'd be like, the book says hit. And she'd be like, no, yeah. no I'm going to stay. I'm and like it. everybody's cards would be screwed because of that. Yeah, no, that was our first and last uh, double date in Vegas. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. We'll do it again. Um, <laughs> what we're getting at here is individual risk tolerance, risk. knowing your limits and the importance of stopping out as an individual trader, as a day trader, as a long-term investor, those things all apply. To the vein of that, it's are you using leverage or not? I think that's Mm. where people get into trouble because you could be fundamentally sound on an analysis, but once leverage enters the picture, it won't matter. If the market moves a certain way for whatever reason, you can get wiped out. And I think that's where a lot of people get into trouble. It's this like heavy Mm -hmm. margin trading. The brokerages, I mean, it's not hard to get approved. Ron Mm -hmm. Cohen, I'm pretty sure it's an opt out. It's very, very easy to get a margin account these days, especially Uh if you're using Robinhood. Can you explain what a margin account is to our listeners who might not know? Absolutely. And I almost don't want to be the reason you find out about this. Not- the Wall Street skinny is not your gateway drug to day trading. I am not liable. I want to be very clear. I don't even use margin. But a margin account, I mean, this is a very, very standard option that you can opt for in a brokerage account. And it's borrowing money to buy stocks or buy investments. And what usually happens when I'm sure you've seen these memes or 
headlines about people getting margin called or even the movie Margin Call that came out in 2011. And 99% of the time, if you are reading about a bank that goes under because they were levered too much or basically if you're reading about the crisis or, or many of these situations, it yeah. usually comes down to some version of a margin call. And what has happened is someone borrowed a bunch of money, they bought a bunch of stock and the stock starts to go down or the asset, wherever they bought, starts to go down. And usually there's a limit to how much it can go down before either the account gets liquidated and then the lender recovers it, or there's maybe some separate collateral that that you have. You know, For instance, Elon Musk buying Twitter, I haven't seen the exact term sheet, but a lot of people are speculating that because he borrowed a couple billion dollars from an assortment of banks, there may be some Tesla stock that he put up as collateral, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. in the event that the company goes under, they may be able to cover some stock. Long story short, if you buy stocks on margin, you're taking a loan and you're liable to repay that loan. And they are going to liquidate either whatever you have left in your investment account if it starts performing poorly and you'll get wiped out to zero or whatever other collateral they require is going to be seized. So that's something to mm-hmm. keep in mind if you're using margin to make speculative investments. So I've, I've seen a lot of people that. get margin called. So when you think about next steps and what you want to do with this empire that you've built with your podcast and your content creation, <laughs> what's the end game there? What are you looking to do? Are you looking to just educate and entertain? Is there some greater purpose? I want to continue growing it. I want it to be the best and biggest and most fun show on finance in the world. Like, Who do I want to reach? And I think mm-hmm. what... I'm very impressed with with what you guys are doing. And I think you're the right people to do it as well. There are a lot of young people who need guidance. And it's not just young people. It's anybody who's looking into this, I'm sure appreciates the guidance. And it's so difficult to get high quality information. I mean, that was my original reason for jumping into it. It's like, you know, I could be that person that I never was able to reach out to. The only person I had was Kristen telling me to dump all my money (laughs) into funeral homes. I think that's always been the main purpose. It's just to be informative. It's to be a face that's helpful and ideally entertaining as well. And I'm just going to keep rolling with it and and building and and see what happens. I think this is like a lifelong kind of journey and something I'll be doing for a long time. If there's any advice I can give, and I think we touched on this a little bit with the investment stuff, it's just have a long-term horizon. Because once you have a long-term horizon, there's no gun to your head. Having margin on an investment takes away that long-term horizon, right? Because now you have to hope that things go perfectly as planned. So not having a long-term horizon is oftentimes going to be the big mistake that a lot of people make. And I have a long-term horizon yeah. with this stuff. And Ish, for our listeners who have fallen in love with your approach and your humor and your dynamic, <laughs> can you please share your socials with us? And we'll put this all in the show notes as well so mm-hmm. people can follow you. But I want to let our listeners know where they can follow you because I think that you just have such an awesome energy and so much insight to share. No, thank you. And thank you, uh, more importantly, for having me on. I think you guys are doing an absolutely great job with this. And I'm really excited to see where you're going to be a year from now. It's going to be magical. (laughs) Well, I'll be swimming in Tupperware. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I hope you become a Tupperware billionaire. I really do. You'll have to put in like 20 million into the company to be a top 10% holder, right? So I think, (laughs) hey, with margin, I mean, we can make it happen. For the low price of 20 million. (laughs) With margin, we can make it happen. You can find me on Anish, A-N-I-S-H-K, Mitra, M-I-T-R-A on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all socials. I, I prefer Instagram though. And my podcast with my co-host Zaid Edmani is Laughing Stocks. And that's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And we have video clips and stuff too on our socials, but those are the, the two main things. And you actually have, you provide some good advice on LinkedIn as well. 
Yes, when I have time to sit down and write, I like to share creative stories and like reflections. On- LinkedIn is like where I become Drake. Like I try to be very <laughs> reflective and reminiscent of like, yo, I should. I'm going to go read your LinkedIn raps now. I expect a lot. <laughs> it's like LinkedIn is like sad Drake where I'm like kind of like, oh man, like I wish I hadn't done that, but here's what I learned. I think the best part about this, and I'm sure you guys love this, is like the young people just reaching out. I'm just like, just be young and, and enjoy your I- I know, (laughs) I know. Um, It is funny because it is so deeply ingrained in your subconscious when you're working in the financial services industry, the front page of the Wall Street Journal rule, right? Yes. Don't put anything in an email. Don't put anything in a Bloomberg. Don't say anything on the phone that you wouldn't want to see on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And now Kristen and I are dancing on TikTok. So like (laughs) this, I had to blow up that rule. You know, Kristen will tell you this. I initially wanted to pay friends of mine as actors to be in. T- I was like, this is clearly the best way to short circuit this. We filmed one TikTok video. I was like, well, that's not going to work. So <laughs> you Kristen has, has beaten no, it you guys, you guys are doing great. I mean, it, just, it looks natural. It looks fine. I would get a lot of help out of it if I, I mean, I still do. But if I was, you know, some, <laughs> some junior in college, like trying to get one of these jobs, which I think are infinitely harder to get now, it's just so much more competitive. It would be very helpful to me. Well, Anish, we welcome your, uh, your snarky comments about duration. So we can go back and forth and have lots of inside <laughs> jokes on that front. <laughs> this no, has been awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. We hope to have you back on. And- My pleasure. Anytime. Whatever you guys want me, I'm here. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 